Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Henry and Gregor implicitly encouraged everyone to use Rethink. You wondered if he had always done the clinic smile. You couldn't have fallen in love with that, even back then. Back then was when Catherine managed to get you and your band their first paid gig at the Elliott Perlman Wellness Center in Manhattan. Arriving early, you realized you may have been a little high to do a charity gig. Because when you left the elevator, you felt threatened by the ballroom chandelier and began a little trot to get away from it. This is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to Rachel Genn, author of What You Could Have Won, in this nonlinear story of an unhealthy relationship, an ambitious psychiatrist experiments by giving drugs to his already unstable girlfriend, Astrid, a rising superstar, is already trying to blot out past regrets and unhappiness. And rehab in Paris isn't at all helpful. It's while watching all 86 episodes of The Sopranos, the 1999 to 2007 television drama, that Astrid begins to understand bullying and figures out how to escape from it. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for joining me today. Hello, Galit. How are you? Thanks. So what interested you in basing your novel on the tragic life of the great Amy Winehouse? Um, Well, actually, I had started writing the book before she died, and I had already decided that I was going to have someone who was a performer as my main character, someone who um, is out there for an immediate reaction from an audience. And when Amy Winehouse died, it was... um, In real life, as well as in literature, gestures finish me off. So I remember seeing um, a tiny gathering of people in the audience for Amy Winehouse on television. can't remember what show it was, but she had just started uh, dating the Blake, whatever his name is, who uh, ended up um, making a mess of things for her, in my opinion. But she reached up with, uh, uh, she was looking at him up in the gods in the theatre and she mouthed, I love you to him. And she just waved with the fingers of her right hand and kind of pointed to her heart, made herself like phosphorescently vulnerable out there on stage. And I was just, I felt so protective of her and I felt so um, jealous of that amount of vulnerability and ability to give herself 100% to someone. And those two things just started to conflict in me and I couldn't get them out of my mind when I was writing these two characters. So um, although she she really did, and her death really did influence the trajectory of the book, I had started writing it before she affected me in this way. Mm, so interesting. You completed a PhD in psychopharmacology and worked in neuroscience And then you did um, a switch. Could you talk about how it was you became a writer? Um, I can. Yes, there are some kind of like banalities to it, which I'll probably avoid, uh, practicalities. But I had been in science for about 15 years, and I was part of a department where we were trying to internationalize and 
Um, I've only thought about this since writing the book in actual fact. We were really going quite glamorous at that point, if a, a, a neuroscience department can be glamorous. And um, what happened was we were getting people from all over the world, lots of American neuroscientists like Terry Sanofsky and I think even Amir Zeki came over. I can't remember now, it's so long ago, but we were really getting in the big guns. And uh, I started to realise how absolutely ego-driven science was and how political it was and how uh, how much I, w- I felt betrayed by this, um, you know, hoping for objectivity and and truth and um, I think that is one of the things that comes out in the book is that the institutions that science kind of is embedded in are just as ripe for um, betrayal and conspiracy and uh, all of those things that you expect uh, fuel arts Um, and I thought to myself oh I just remember how we were trying to get glamorous and it came back to me that I'd read a really interesting description of what glamour is. Uh, and I wondered if I could, I've got it on my phone here. I wondered if I could read that out. It's from John Berger's Ways of Seeing. I think that's where it's from. And it says, the happiness of being envied is glamour. Being envied is a solitary form of reassurance. It depends precisely upon not sharing your experience with those who envy you. You're observed with interest, but you do not observe with interest. If you do, you will become less enviable. Mm. So I was, yeah, that's what I was, I was interested in, kind of like the the political side of science and the, the glamour kind of like let the scales fall from my eyes in a way. And I decided that once my mother died, I would move back to where I'm from in a kind of deal with the devil with my partner uh, and take up writing, which is what I've always wanted to do. So, yeah, it was partly practical, partly that I thought I was getting away from accuracy if I'd have only known that writing was going to be like the ultimate in the ultimate test in accuracy. I may have stayed in science. <laughs> Why did you choose to tell this story in a non-linear form? I have to say that... This story came to me, uh, it kind of like impinged upon me in that form. I did not set out to make things as difficult for myself as I did. I wanted to do something simple, but the the form of it took over. There's a Barbara Hepworth quote that says, a spiral takes you by the arm and by the hand. And whenever I think of the shape of this book, that comes to me because Somehow I wanted each section of the book to be spinning beside the the, the, the consequent um, section. And I wanted it very early on to be a two-hander. Uh, but the, the non-linear form caused me so much grief when it came to actually writing the thing. But like I say, when I'm writing something, I get the toppling feeling of being immersed fully in the work only when the form kind of presents itself to me. And I feel like I don't have a great deal of say in that. Mm -hmm. Mm. So your chapters alternate between Astrid, who speaks to herself in second person, and Henry, who is and isn't her boyfriend. He's clearly awful. What Mm. does she see in him? Um, She sees the perfect receptacle for what she doesn't want to deal with in herself. So Henry is um, inspired by all the great, terrible characters. My own favourite <laughs> is, um, I don't know if people will know Larry Sanders anymore. Is Larry Sanders even played anymore in America? 
Um, no, but he's known to a certain demographic. Yes, exactly. Well, he had on his show, he had Hank, who was the most unself-aware and obsequious toadying sidekick to Larry. And I am fascinated by that gap in awareness. Um, and I think that for Astrid, Henry represents some kind of steadiness in the way that science used to, to uh, feel to me, some kind of kind of um, stamp of authority, some kind of um, affirmation for Astrid that she is she daren't look for in herself. Also, he's very charismatic. He's um, he's he, he promises her that he has the kind of potential that she daren't look for in herself. So he's also very, very interested in fame for himself, which Astrid can take or leave, but um, gets the burden of as she ascends as this star. Um, so, yeah, she, I think he's the right person at the right time for Astrid, she sees. But as we see throughout the book, as she discovers herself and gets closer to who she really is, she falls away from Henry. So, Henry's a psychiatrist, um, failed in some way. Can you talk about his relationship, what happened with Bird Boy and Frank? Ah, yes. So, um, Henry is uh, in the lab. He works under a, a very powerful and macho lab leader called Frank Leary, who has a very excellent uh, eye movement laboratory. Uh, so he does eye tracking for uh, various companies and also for his basic research. And Bird Boy comes along as a once-in-a-lifetime find for Frank's lab. Uh, Bird Boy is someone who doesn't have eye movements and moves his head in a way um, that a bird would to compensate. And those kind of finds in science are as poetic as they are scientifically gratifying. Um, and I think that story, because I'd, I'd read about this case um, when I was doing my PhD, I think that it captured me with the promise of, um, it kind of glowed with significance and, and poesy. It was just absolutely intriguing to me that that could occur. And I wanted to have uh, something like that, something that could be commodified by science in actual fact, um, but that was fragile and beautiful. Uh, and I felt like that would be a great um, point of conflict for Henry because he wants to be the discoverer of this case. He wants to be the first author on the paper about this case. And it was a great vehicle for getting out Henry's narcissism and his his lust for success within this niche area of, of science. What about his relationship with Jimp and with Gregor? I didn't quite understand that. Oh, um, his relationship with Jimp is one of absolute jealousy. Jimp is the good boy of the lab. He does everything that Frank says. He, um, he spends his whole life in the lab and devotes himself to Frank in the way one would a, a master. And he, he even sleeps under the bench uh, of the lab. Um, Henry does not want to put in the hours, but he wants the glory. And so he, he really resents Jimp for who is who we call Jimp because his name is Jim. But he's, he, Henry believes him to be uh, Frank's little chimp, his stats chimp. So he, Jimp is, is everything that Henry will never be. He's a hard worker. He's loyal. He's devoted to the science. Henry wants the glory, and that's it. Gregor gives him the chance in a, a different lab 
can, so Henry kind of moonlights to Gregor um, and his regretier lab. He, he's got people who have plastic surgery and then come to him with, his regret, with their regrets and Gregor puts things right for them or wrong, as the case may be. And Henry goes over there to work because he sees in Gregor a bit of a superstar, someone who's maverick and someone who can hopefully give him the limelight he feels he deserves. Mm. The the plastic surgery, that was hysterical. <laughs> Thank you. Did you want that to be funny? Um, well, I hope that comedy kind of blooms up through all of the, the kind of like juxtaposing strands. I really do. Because um, I think that comedy is just a, a funny way of saying something serious, as Peter Ustinov used to say. Um, so, yeah, I, I did want it to be funny, yeah. We understand pretty early on that something is broken about Astrid, but she's gaining fame as a singer. What's going on with her? Um, she is uh, someone who is very um, aware of her own power and is frightened to death of the kind of like, um, I would say the, the, the threat of like annihilation that one might feel when one has that kind of power. So she's, she's aware that she um, has this effect on people when she sings. Uh, she's had that from being a little girl. We don't discover that till the end, but she has this effect on people and she cannot believe that it is because it's her own doing. Therefore, she looks to Henry to give her the affirmation that she cannot, she doesn't have access to within herself until uh, certain things happen in the book. Mm-hmm. Astrid and Henry have a few things going on, oh, so many things. Mm-hmm. First of all, can you explain jive talk and tell us why it's a thing between the two of them? Um, I chose that because I love the idea of a secret language um, being part of the initial relationship between two people. I think that happens kind of naturally in a lot of new meetings and when love is blossoming. But I thought it would be uh, a very Henry-ish thing for him to choose a language that's not his, it's not Astrid's, but it's one that he thinks that he and her are um, free to use and um, I, I also inserted in there the idea that they could choose words. I think they're called, I just discovered this recently, mount weasels, words that aren't really in a dictionary, that, but that you can say are. And they, mm-hmm. they choose those for each other to kind of like deepen their relationship um, using this private language. Um, I, I just I love the sound of jive. I think it's an amazing um, uh, way of communicating and very uh, symbolic of the times that it was they originated. And I just thought it would be a great juxtaposition to have Henry choose that for Astrid as something that they could just take and run with. Hmm. Also, the zoot, that was something that they use in their relationship in some way. Yes, that was the... Uh, so he bought her... the. One of the first times they met, he buys her from a secondhand store, um, a secondhand bookstore, at this book called The Zoot, which is a lexicon of jive, which they learn together. And one of the early, one of the things I loved writing was one of the early scenes where they're on the picnic together um, and they um, begin testing each other and learning bits and bobs to be able to string together sentences. Uh, And they use it in a kind of seductive way for each other. But of course, as the relationship changes, so does their relationship with the Zoot. And I used it as a kind of subplot, I guess, or a vehicle for for things going wrong. Does Astrid's agent Catherine 
have her best interests in mind? Hmm. Um, I think whatever uh, whatever suits Astrid suits Catherine at first, and especially as the money starts rolling in. I think Catherine is very happy to do anything to keep that happening. Uh, Catherine's able to buy a new house quite soon after her album is released. And um, I think she, she kind of, Astrid knows what's going on to a certain extent, but she's happy to be supported by Catherine. I think also Astrid has not had any parents for so long that anyone taking care of her um, is kind of a uh, an easy fix for Astrid. Mm-hmm. Astrid is drawn by Tony Soprano in the show The Sopranos, but she also obsesses over Adriana. It's been over a decade, Rachel. So for those who might not have seen it and those who never got into it, mm. can you explain? What what is their pull? Um, well, I, you know what? I think it's, it's a, 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 although I think it's the epitome of this kind of series, it's a kind of, of, of story where the macho, psychopathic uh, family head um, is is the one who is the the, the thrust of the story. Um, I, I did I sent to you, uh, Galit, a little piece about something that I found Ursula Le Guin saying about the um, the kinds of stories that we we become part of. So as as Henry and Astrid are watching The Sopranos, they get embroiled in the in the uh, the storylines and in the way that Tony acts within these storylines. And um, Ursula Le Guin says that she she had such trouble with these stories about bashing, thrusting, raping, and killing about the hero. And uh, it really chimed with me when she said, "It's a story that hid my humanity from me." And so, as a plot device, the Sopranos are there because Astrid is 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 having to get through layers and layers of her own story, of stories that are thrust upon her, of stories that she's sharing with Henry. She's having to get through all of these layers to find out who she is, what her story is. Um, and and Ursula Le Guin says the trouble is we've all let ourselves become part of the killer story, so we may get finished along with it. Hence, it's with a certain feeling of urgency that I seek the nature subject words of the other story, the untold one, the life story. And that's what I want to come out for Astrid at the end of the book. So So Catherine is worried about her and sends her to um, a vacation in Greece. I don't know if Catherine sent her if she chose Greece, but they find an island and yeah. I, wasn't it that Astrid grew up in? She speaks fluent Greek. Yeah, her, her grandmother. Like a, she's been there with her grandmother before to Antiparos, which is a tiny island on which there's a nudist camp, and herself and Henry kind of um, set up uh, there to recuperate after something terrible has happened to her on tour. So Catherine has suggested some relaxation time and for her to get away from the limelight. Uh, she's had some trouble with paparazzi, etc., and they, they go there together, ostensibly together. But they they meet a whole group of people there who really test the relationship between Astrid and Henry. Um, and the fact that it's a nudist camp, um, I think, makes it all the more raw. This test of their relationship. So, uh, yeah, yeah, Catherine, the studio does send them there. Um, and it's there really where the, it's a, a, quite a large strand of the book is based on Antiparos. 
um, especially around a party that they cannot discover. They can't find a party that they can hear every night. They're not part of things. And this drives Henry absolutely mad. And I think I read about you that you had that experience, that there was a party. (laughs) That's right, yeah. (laughs) You couldn't find. What a nightmare. Never. Literally weeks of hearing it happen every night and not being able to find it and feeling absolutely rejected not because not because no one asked us, but because we knew it was going on. We were right there. It would seem so close. And yet, still, we could never find We did in the end. But finding it was such a big deal in the end. It was so amazing. And I wanted that sweep, that kind of like crescendo. Uh, I wanted to capture that in some way. But it's never wonderful once you find that sort of thing. No, no, no. Can we talk a little bit about... Gigi and the dwarf and Astrid's experience on the island because Henry's really he's not coming through. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Astrid is um, is trying to see uh, the island as a place of repose and for her to get clean and to be good to herself. And of course, all of these things fold in, and Henry exacerbates all of her effort. Uh, no, exacerbates the the situation for Astrid, and all of her efforts are kind of. Uh, he pokes the wounds, really. She, he does not help her in any way. Um, and he wants to push her as far as he can, of course, because he has he's begun to observe her in a way that he would uh, a, a laboratory case. So he's he's got different motives to her when they're on the island. And I try to, in the kind of like split screen device that I use, I try to Uh, show just how well Astrid gets on with people, how badly Henry gets on with people, despite how he sees himself getting on with people. He needs all the affirmation, whereas she needs none. She gets all the attention where he's desperate for it. So I I just wanted to play with those tensions as they were in this idyll, you know, on this island where everything was seemed possible and 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 things might ostensibly between them be good again, but um, I won't give too much away. But um, yeah, that's not quite the case. Gigi and the dwarf. Yeah, Gigi is the handyman on the uh, campsite, and Henry is very taken with him from the start. Of course, Gigi is very taken from Astrid. He's seen her on MTV. He knows who she is, and so there's a bit of kind of like Shearer worship going on from uh, the handyman Gigi to Astrid. And Henry, again, of course, not being the centre of attention, nearly kills him. So when they're playing nude volleyball, he's dying to impress them but with his moves. Again, it, it very rarely comes off, and his macho um, image of himself becomes laughable to everyone else. Mm-hmm. Before Catherine sends Astrid to the island, uh, she's sent to a very strange rehab facility in Paris. Can you explain about what's going on there and hypnoray and the nude certificate that she needs in order to get out. Yeah. Well, I, I've always been very interested. Ray comes from uh, really the, the, the kernel of Ray is, is in uh, a night I spent in Vancouver with Lemmy from Motorhead in a basement. And he was literally such a caricature of the rock God, the aging rock God that I almost like calcified before him. He was, he, I caught him, and this is in the book, I caught him like combing his hair in the women's toilets and, 
and pretending to take sips from tequila when it was getting passed round instead of actually drinking it. It was just quite quite magical to observe <laughs> what happens in the ageing rock god. And um, I wanted some of that in, in Ray. I wanted to, him to be uh, evangelical about uh, the disease, as addicts often call it, and, and even down to the fact that he used uh, Plido, his 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 catchphrase and his his acronym. Please leave your d- disease outside. Um, he uses that all the way through the book, and um, yeah, he set up a little group therapy session that is very idiosyncratic, and uh, I wonder actually if it could ever work for anyone. But, of course, Astrid escapes it and um, gets into even more trouble than she was in at Hypno Rays. Yeah. Why was Astrid so scarred by what happened at Burning Man? Um, I think she was scarred before... I, I won't go into too much detail about what did happen at Burning Man, but I think the thing that um, catapulted her into the events of that evening was uh, uh, what she expected Henry to do is not what he did. So I think that that was the thing that damaged her before any of the other stuff that went on afterwards. It was about her finally having to face up to the fact that he wasn't going to do what she wished he would. So he's not redeemable? Uh, No, I don't think he is. But it takes her such a long time to realise that. And that was also one of the pleasures of writing the book, Pleasures in Inverted Commas, Um, was to get that balance right of her being shown over and over again what the best thing to do would be and for her not to take that route. Yeah. Did your heart break for her? Oh, yeah, it did, yeah. Yeah, it did. But um, I knew it was going to be worth it. I knew that she was going to, even if she didn't, take off by the end of the book she was gonna have us uh, be ready to take have a standing start you know Rachel I've never read a book like this before um I've read snippets but the I, I'm thinking about the spiral it really was like a spiral and now having you explain your thought process is so interesting I'm sorry I'm sorry I didn't talk to you before I read the book oh, no, I want to read it again now I'm happy I'm happy I hope I hope you do uh, tell other people about it. That would be fantastic. Well, I am delighted to, and it's going to go on websites and hopefully go around the world. Uh, can so. I just mention uh, uh, that I'm really enjoying your accent? Just um, why don't you explain where you are in the world so everybody understands? I'm in Yorkshire. Well, I'm in South Yorkshire. I'm in Sheffield in the north of England, uh, and we are currently, um, yeah, in the uh, process of a Tory government, uh, well, under the uh, authority, shall I say, of a Tory government, which is very interesting. I understand you're having a pandemic over there. I'm kidding. We, That's we right. It's, That's right. it's global. <laughs> this is so yeah. much fun talking to you, and I'm wondering what you're working on next. Oh, uh, currently I'm writing about um, immersion. Uh, in fact, it's come about because of the pandemic in some ways. Uh, everyone I know, writers, readers, anyone in general, was talking about an inability to become immersed in anything once lockdown hit. And 
uh, I'd already been working on the idea of bringing together the neuroscience and the poetry of immersion and the creative state, like reverie state. So I'm, I'm writing a few uh, pieces about that at the moment, and one will be coming out soon, I think. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm really interested in, in how we get into the zone to create and what it means to get into that zone, scientifically and artistically. Well, may we all be in that zone, right? <laughs> yeah, thank well, absolutely. You so, thank you so much for joining me today, Rachel. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Galit. That was great. Thank you. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Rachel Genn, author of What You Could Have Won. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As New Book Network listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash nbn forward slash join.